Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Defending the Faith, today, with a message entitled, Can I Know Who Jesus Was? So turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Every once in a while when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, someone will say to me, but does anyone know if there really was a Jesus? And if there was, how do we know who he was? That's not an unimportant question. And because of a number of recent events, many people wonder if anyone can know who the real historical Jesus actually was. In 1892, the German theologian Martin Koller said that we must distinguish the Jesus of history from what he called the Christ of faith. What he meant was that no one knows for certain who the real Jesus was. We only know what the church believes about him. Wow, really? You know, if that were true, would that matter? Well, yes, it would. So here's why. Theologian William Lane Craig said, the most distinctive claim about Christianity in relation to other world religions is that Christianity says that God has revealed himself in history. In other words, our faith is not like many world religions, which is a a series of doctrines or moral commands. It's the story of a God in real, observable human history. And that story, the story of God in human history, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus. If history is wrong, or if the history is unclear, well, we have no faith. I'm reading 2 Peter 1, 16-21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is really important to hear Peter out. When he writes, he writes because he is an eyewitness of real historical events. He says he has not made up cleverly devised myths. You know, a myth is a story which has no basis in real and observable history. The account of Jesus is not like that. Men who observed it were men like Peter. He carefully directed Mark as Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. But in making his case, Peter mentions a specific event. In Mark chapter 9, Mark tells about Jesus taking Peter, James, and John and leading them up a high mountain by themselves. The passage then says, and he was transfigured before them. And as they watched, his clothing became intensely white and it was shining. And then as they watched, Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking to him. And then the voice of God spoke and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, we might wonder of all the events of Jesus' life, from the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount to the disputes with the religious teachers to the many miracles he performed, why, when making the case for the historicity of Jesus, would Peter refer to this event? You know, I think the answer to that question must have something to do with what that event signifies. The transfiguration prefigures the second coming of Jesus in a unique way. 
See, just prior to going up the mountain, Mark records that in the ministry of Jesus, they were gathering storm clouds. See, Mark 8.31, Mark says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, this announcement of his coming suffering, it so shocked the disciples that Peter himself took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, after all, Peter knew that Jesus was the Messiah, and in his view, a Messiah was not going to be killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And then Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. Your mind is not set on the things of God. And with that, Jesus calls the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and he tells them that unless they deny themselves and pick up their crosses, they can't be his disciples. And then we come to Mark 8, 38, and Mark records Jesus saying, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. Let's put all that together. Jesus clearly told his disciples that he would come in glory, but that in the present hour, I mean the one they were in, this hour would include not only his death and his resurrection, but would also include the suffering of his followers. They'd better get ready to suffer. Now, all that's the background to the incident that Peter mentions. They then go on a high mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. Peter understood that the incident meant that all the followers of Jesus were given the assurance that the same Jesus who lived among them would one day return in glory. And then he adds, we were eyewitnesses of this promise when we saw him transfigured. The real Jesus of history is also the Jesus who will return to end human history. That, says Peter, is what I personally witnessed. Now then, Peter's not done. He said, even while we have the consistent eyewitness testimony of those who saw and recorded those events, he adds, we have something more sure. There's another fact that you also must consider. And then he refers to the prophetic word. And of course, he has in mind the consistency of 1,500 years of prophetic writing that makes up the Old Testament. What Peter is emphasizing is that his eyewitness experience of Jesus is entirely consistent with the Old Testament, and more so, it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that forms a very weighty argument for the truthfulness of the New Testament record of Jesus. The New Testament is not written by the next generation. No, no. It's written by the primary generation, the generation that actually witnessed the events. And the New Testament record is also the fulfillment of 1,500 years of prophetic writings. And so Peter portrays himself as a reliable, truthful, observant eyewitness. Now, either he is what he says he is, or he's a deceiver. And that's precisely What some people are saying about the Bible story of Jesus, they simply say there's no evidence for believing that what the Bible says about Jesus is to be trusted. So at the beginning of the 20th century, Albert Schweitzer described what what he called a search for the historical Jesus. He had assumed that the gospel witness was just too biased. I mean, after all, didn't John already reveal his bias when he wrote John 20, verse 31? But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. Well, said people like Schweitzer, that's not the statement of a historian. That's a statement of an evangelist. 
And we look to evangelists to tell us history. Evangelists are like salespeople. They want to sell you their product. That doesn't mean they're bad or deceivers. They're just doing their job. But historians are supposed to be what we call dispassionate observers. They're not supposed to try to prove anything. They're supposed to only go where the facts lead them. And so has come this attempt, beginning in the late 1800s, to recover the true historical Jesus. A number of attempts have been made to further that goal. For example, in 1985, the the late Dr. Robert Funk began what he called the Jesus Seminar in Southern California. He gathered together over 100 scholars who met for a seminar twice a year. He said his mission was to discover the real historical Jesus, not the one found in Christian legend. So each meeting focused on a set of sayings by Jesus, sayings that were found in the four gospel accounts. That committee met to discuss whether they believed on a case-by-case basis what the Bible said about Jesus was historical. So after some discussion, each of the scholars would then vote by placing different colored marbles into a box, and then they would count the marbles. And the box would be passed around, and each scholar would put his marble into the box. A red marble meant that Jesus really said that. Pink meant he probably said something like that. Gray meant that he didn't say anything like that, but there was probably some idea behind it, some some historical fact that has now become distorted. And then a black marble meant that the scholar thought that the incident about Jesus, well, that incident was a complete fabrication. So that seminar went on for a number of years, and of course, the press just ate this kind of thing up. See, what really made the headlines was the statement that 82% of what the Bible says about Jesus is false. And what's more, they judged the entire Gospel of John to be a fraud. At least, that's what the press reported that credible scholars were saying. And then the press gave the idea that if you believe the Bible's version of Jesus, it's because of faith, and faith is something that happens contrary to the evidence. I mean, after all, the evidence pointed in a different direction. And so came to be what has been called the Jesus of history versus the Christ of faith. It all depended on whether you believed in miracles or whether you were a rational person committed to the evidence. What happens when someone is converted? Can a person lose their salvation after conversion? Is it possible to keep sinning after being genuinely saved? These are all questions you may have found yourself asking at some point in your spiritual journey. To that end, Dr. John Newfeld has an audio series called Your Salvation Story, where he unpacks these difficult questions in detail and provides valuable insights that offer clarity and helps you to see the wonder of your redemption like never before. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering you this five-message CD series for free, accompanied by a special reflection guide crafted to help you get the very most out of this Bible teaching series. To request your CD series and guide, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't hesitate. The reflection guide is available only as supplies last and more can be purchased for group use. Now, of course, what the press never reported about the Jesus Seminar was why these scholars believed that 82% of what the gospel said about Jesus was false. 
You see, most people simply assumed that it was because these were scholars and they had discovered something in history or in their area of expertise that showed them that the Bible was false. <laughs> but, and this is fascinating, most of the scholars in the Jesus Seminar had no historical training, no biblical training, had no understanding of the original languages or ancient Semitic cultures, archaeological finds, or history. You know, it turns out that these scholars had no scholarship in the area over which they were making these statements. Let me give you a little example. I'm a Bible teacher. I've been a Bible teacher for well over 30 years. I've done some studies in original languages. I have four post-secondary degrees. I've spent my life examining biblical texts. Now, that doesn't make me a New Testament expert, but I read experts constantly. Now, imagine that on the basis of those credentials, I started making predictions about the Canadian economy, the future of the Canadian dollar, whether the Canadian economy is going to grow or to be in decline. Now, let's say you asked me, well, on what basis are you saying that since you have no expertise in this area. Now, let's say that my response was something like this. Well, I've been studying the book of Revelation, and I think the Canadian dollar is going to collapse before Jesus comes back. Now, if that was what I was saying, you'd have a right to dismiss me as someone who really doesn't know what he's talking about. Do you think my example is extreme? Well, consider this. Every one of the scholars in the Jesus Seminar Committee were naturalists. Naturalism is a philosophy that believes every event in the world has a natural cause. That belief is fundamental to atheism. Or to put it negatively, naturalists believe that no event in the world has a supernatural cause. And that means, for naturalists, all stories of miracles are to be rejected out of hand. So these scholars believed not on the basis of evidence, but on the basis of their presupposed philosophy about the nature of reality, that miracles have never happened and could never happen, and that any story of a miracle was just flat out wrong. So please understand, these supposed scholars had already rejected 82% of the Gospels before they even began to consider the evidence. They didn't have to vote. They had already voted on those matters before they read the New Testament. Let me provide you another example. Imagine a man who believes he's dead. He tells his wife and his friends, I'm dead. He doesn't show up to work because he's dead. He's driving his wife crazy. So one day, his wife persuades him to go see a psychologist. And the psychologist, no matter how he reasons with the man, can't get him to reconsider. But then the psychologist hits on a plan. He persuades this guy that dead men don't bleed. And the man agrees, dead men don't bleed. That's because together, They've gone through medical reports and examined scientific evidence. Our confused man who thinks he's dead while poring over the evidence agrees dead men don't bleed. Then the psychologist takes out a pin and pricks the man's finger and blood comes out. Ah, says the man. Well, you look at that. Dead men do bleed. You see, some people have a belief structure that will not allow them to consider evidence. I mean, consider the naturalist who says miracles never happen. Well, how do you know that, we ask? Ah, they say, because there are no credible reports of miracles. And so we ask, well, how do you know if a report about miracles is credible or not? And they answer, well, if it contains a miracle, it's not credible. See, dead men do bleed. But all of that wasn't reported in the press. What was reported was that a group of prominent scholars said that 82% of the Gospels were untrue. And that's left an impression in people's minds. No one knows for sure who the real Jesus was. But other events compounded this impression. 
You know, more recently, Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code, made the claim that the ancient church actively suppressed the real story of Jesus, that Jesus was actually married and that he didn't die on a cross, that he never said he was God and so forth. And Dan Brown argued that there were other stories about Jesus. The real ones were out there. But all these real accounts of Jesus were suppressed by the church who never wanted the real story to come out. It was a massive cover-up. It was a massive conspiracy. But now with the discovery of the secret gospels, such as, you know, the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary Magdalene and the, the gospel of Judas, well, for the very first time, we get to read a different and indeed the real story of Jesus. So who's right? Are Christians the victims of a massive delusion? Or are there real historical reasons why Christians believe that Jesus presented in our Bible is a real and accurate story? You know, as an aside, I don't know a lot of people who have read the Jesus Seminar reports who can, or who can tell you the arguments behind the Da Vinci Code. Now, some can, to be sure, but, but what's apparent is that there are a number of people who think that the account of Jesus that's found in the Bible, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, performed amazing miracles, claimed equality with God, told of his second coming, then, then died on a cross, and then rose from the dead. Well, they think that account that, that children were told in Sunday school, that account has now been discovered to be untrue. You know, I recently had a conversation just like that with a lapsed Canadian Catholic who was living on the Greek island of Santorini. He told me he worshiped the ancient Greek gods and goddesses. And I asked him about his Catholic background and how he had transitioned from being a Catholic to what he had now become. And his first words were, well, I think that Catholicism is a fraud. Now look, I'm not a Catholic, but I was intrigued. What in Catholicism did he think was fraudulent? I mean, he said, there are a lot of other gospels out there other than the four in the Catholic Bible. Now, of course, as with most conversations of this sort, it's, it's never that simple. I mean, he was angry over the abuses in the church and, and about a, a number of other things as well. But, but the idea that the Bible got the story of Jesus wrong gave him all the ammunition that he needed. You know, I recently heard a similar conversation on a secular radio broadcast. And the host could hardly conceal his glee as he proudly announced that no thinking person could accept the biblical accounts of the real Jesus. This week is a week in which we're discussing apologetics. And apologetics is simply a word that means to give a defense, to be able to reasonably answer those who ask us for the reason for the hope that is within us. And as all of us know, some questions are honest and some are not. Furthermore, even the honest questions people ask are sometimes based on real knowledge, but at other times people can ask questions that are based, well, frankly, on ignorance. And that's to say people have heard certain things, and in their view, where there's smoke, there there must be fire. See, they don't know. It's just what they've heard. If so many people are saying that the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus are not genuine historical accounts, then it must be that there must be something to this. My counsel is this. Whenever we're entering into a dialogue, we ought to make sure that we understand what people are asking. Make sure that you know what they're saying. Perhaps they're asking about those other so-called accounts of Jesus. Was there really a gospel of Mary Magdalene? And what does that mean? But we might ask, do you have a specific account in mind? Have you read that account? Have you read the gospel accounts? Just ask. But at other times, they might be asking a different question. I mean, you might run into someone who's actually read the Gospels and has noticed differences in the four Gospel accounts of Jesus and might wonder what the explanation of those things might be. 
Or you might meet someone who doesn't know that there is a world of difference between an eyewitness account and one that was written 250 to 400 years after the actual event and was influenced by the cultural philosophy of his day. In other words, it's always important not to have that short five-minute argument with someone. I mean, I don't think that ever works. And in the case of my Canadian friend from Santorini, I soon understood that he really didn't care about what constituted real history or, or what was the significance of an eyewitness account of Jesus. In truth, he was a man who had a very unethical past, and he didn't need Jesus around to tell him that he was sinning. See, almost nothing can be gained by arguing that the gospel of Thomas is a fraud. I mean, the man didn't care. He just didn't want Jesus. Well, fair enough. But that still makes our point. All Christians need to be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. We believe that the Jesus presented in the Bible is indeed the real Jesus of history. We also believe that there is a rational case to be made that the gospel accounts are eyewitness accounts and are consistent with real history. And tomorrow, we're going to see why, but I would argue that at the very least, we need to learn what to say. We believe that the Bible is real history and that this belief is rational and consistent with anyone who seeks to examine the evidence. We want to learn as believers how to do just that, help someone to examine the evidence. John, thanks for today's message. It it stirs up so many thoughts and questions in my own mind. Uh, uh, Even if I know uh, the Jesus that I believe in well enough to describe him to others, you know, this whole area of apologetics, it becomes a little bit overwhelming, a bit frightening, I think, for some people. But it really isn't just for our benefit. We need to know what we believe so that we can effectively share the good news of Jesus with others. Yeah, I think there's a tragedy that has happened. I mean, we have books on apologetics and we have seminars on apologetics. And and sometimes it can seem like apologetics are people discussing things uh, between scholars and that the common people just kind of watch the discussion. But I've been trying to tie the apologetics uh, theme together with the theme of evangelism because all of us should be involved in talking about Jesus all the time. And so when we do, people have questions. And even if we can't answer them, even having a a week like we're having, and the three weeks like we're having, I should say, uh, Ben, it really helps people to know that there are answers out there. And if it's an honest dialogue, I mean, we can actually be involved in that dialogue and not be afraid of it. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to the days ahead as we learn more about our own faith and what we believe. Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. If you're considering a vacation in 2024, we'd love to invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and the leadership team behind them on a Caribbean cruise event from April 5th to the 14th, 2024. This vacation opportunity will provide beautiful scenery. Time being refreshed and challenged by the Bible teaching of Dr. John, laughter, fellowship, and spiritual encouragement with Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and times of worship and song with feature musical guest, Amanda Stock. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. For more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note, 
that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by those who participate.